Thanks for listening to The Lisa Show. This episode addresses mental health and suicide prevention. If you or a loved one is struggling, call 988 for immediate help, resources, and counseling. 988 is free, available 24-7, and it's for everyone. If you're unsure, 988 is a good place to start. Welcome to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. How do you manage self-care while dealing with the mental health of someone else? We don't want to leave anything related to self-care out in our series here on The Lisa Show. And one thing that kept popping up in our research and conversations about taking care of ourselves was, well... What about when someone else's care, particularly their mental health, takes over our own? What if they need me to? Then what? In this episode, you're going to hear from one mom, Rebecca Bingham, about her experience supporting children with severe mental health needs. We also have Dr. Jamie Ballard, a family and parenting intervention researcher who has some concrete ways to support your loved ones, whether that's a child, your spouse, or a friend, while protecting your own mental health. Starting off, I want to share a story with you that is a little painful to me. It's about how I tried to help my son with his mental health. I cringe when I think about it, but, you know, we all have to start somewhere. I could tell one of my oldest kids was stressed out and not completing assigned homework on time in high school. I just want to pause and validate that I can hear the collective head nodding and sighs from older parents here echoing throughout the world. (laughs) And so I thought in order to help him become less stressed, I would be so great to help him organize his life. I know, you're welcome. (laughs) I even thought, I know how I'd organize all of this, but it might be a little too much, so I am going to simplify it for him. I know how I would do it for me, but for him, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna keep this really simple, really easy to follow. Now, I went on Power School, um, which is like a program I think every school district sort of has. It's like a peek into the teacher's grade book to see what assignments are due, how many points they carry, what the assignment is, the final term grade, and, and I saw all the zeros. I'd <laughs> make a list under each of the eight classes, right? I'd put an assignment on a three by five card and (laughs) so that all the assignments were on these three by five cards, right? And then I ordered the card by day. So on Monday, you'll finish these assignments. On Tuesday, you'll do these assignments. On Wednesday, you'll do these assignments and so on and so on. So he'd be caught up and on track in a week. I was super excited. I thought, I'm helping, I'm organized. I'm teaching him important life skills, how to balance a lot of demands, not get overwhelmed, how to stay organized, how to stay, you know, how to set aside a specific time or place to study or work for the future to be effective and really efficient. I know, it's brilliant, right? I am a gift to my son. (laughs) Ah. Don't you just wish that this is how they would receive it? Well, the message was not properly expressed to my son. He took it as more stress, too much, and totally overwhelmed, red-faced. We did not have a good conversation when I presented this organizational plan. I was super caught off guard. I was genuinely surprised and hurt that not only was my extra work and time not appreciated, 
After all, I've graduated from high school. I already did that. I had jobs of my own. Thank you for nothing. But that it was perceived as an insult. And he thought and said to me, well, I don't want to do it that way. My brain doesn't work this way. This is overwhelming and I'll do it. I've got to figure it out for myself. I'm not a child. Let me just do this and face the consequences if I do it or not. Give me some space. He had to learn how to deal with increasing demands on time and energy from school and frankly, doing things he didn't want to do, like homework, to get an outcome he did want, like to graduate. And there was some anxiety and ADHD thrown in there too, which was a longer process to navigate and adjust to than I thought. And my line of thinking still is actually, well, what's the problem? Let's solve it as quickly as possible. And in the meantime, I burned through enormous amounts of time, labor, and emotional energy. And those are my personal resources. At the end of the day, it hadn't helped. And it's so easy to do this. And when a child or a spouse or a loved one struggles with their mental health, a lot of us feel an urgent need just to intervene at any personal cost. As many of us have learned, that doesn't always pay off. And sometimes our instinctive response isn't helpful. It just takes a toll on us, on our loved ones, and on the relationships that are more important than ever during a crisis. Now I want you to hear Rebecca's story. This was actually a part of a larger conversation in the Council of Moms that you'll hear later. But it stood out to me because of what she shared about trauma versaries, baseline expectations, and some of the resources and methods she's used to cope as she supports her children's mental health. We are talking about mental health and not just our own self-care, but how you balance that when you're dealing with other people's mental health. So what has your experience been like with helping your children specifically navigate mental health and, and, and still taking care of yourself? Well, my experience is that I'm terrible at that. Um, so I, um, I so, so yours I is know. a cautionary tale. <laughs> so mine is a cautionary tale. I've got stories for days. Come on over. I'll give you cheese. Uh, no, you know, that really is, I'll tell you, it is a harder thing for me to do than for my own. It's so interesting. I can be having a hard day. So some context. My children and my whole family right now are going through um, some, a little bit of, uh, it's a trauma anniversary in our family. Even when you don't think you remember that hard things have happened, your body mm-hmm. remembers. You remember. And this week is a very difficult, like some really, really ugly, hard things happened in our family. And it's been a little while. And so I wasn't even thinking about it. Things are going great. Things are really like, you know, fine. There's nothing to be that concerned about. And every one of my children, I started watching all of the dominoes fall. You know, the anxiety was spiking and this one's not sleeping. And, you know, I'm seeing all of their little tells and then I'm suddenly feeling it too. And I would lay awake at night and go, what is, what is wrong with me? There's nothing wrong. Everybody's okay. Everybody's safe. You know, there's, there is no reason for this. And then I remembered, oh, there's a trauma. You know, we're all kind of, even when we didn't remember that there was a trauma. And it was good for me to remember that um, even when I feel like I can handle things where I'm like, I can, it's, you know, I, I'm feeling blue, but I know that I'll be okay. I'll know that I'll be okay. Sometimes I can trust that about myself, but I can't seem to trust it about everyone else. I feel like I need to control it. I feel like I need to manage things. I go into this like mom mode of like, nobody should feel upset and everybody should have everything exactly the way, you know, to eat the way you like it. And and I sort of want to go into fix it mode. Um, And and I tend to not do that for myself as much. So it is really interesting that that is a bigger challenge for me and lots of people than it is to just manage your own. (laughs) 
I struggle because I have children that have big, 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 big mental health needs. And some of them are needs that are um, in such a way that it makes them unsafe to themselves. Um, I've, I've logged more hours trying to get kids 5150 than I even care to admit. And, I and have, for those who are unfamiliar with that, will you explain a little bit more about it? Oh, yeah, that's a, an involuntary hold, a mental health hold when someone's a danger to themselves or to others. Um, and so when you have a child that wants to not be here anymore or wants to make other people not be here anymore, it is a horrifying place to be. But it's also the reality for lots and lots of people. Mm-hmm. And it isn't something to be ashamed of, but it also isn't something that most people want to talk about. Out, you know, and so as I dig in and I help my children try to find, for me, the baseline we're looking for is mm-hmm. like safe, safe and alive. <laughs> you know, I've gotten to the point where I say, if you don't go to college, fine. Can you be a responsible person? Great. Can you be, um, you know, safe in our, our community? Can you be um, somebody who can stand to look at yourself in the mirror and not think that you're this awful person? You know, so my baseline is very low and it is a near impossible task to be okay with that. Uh-huh. And so yeah. I, when I say that I'm not doing it well, I just mean it in a way that I cannot fix this for them. And what I have to remind myself to do is not go down with the ship, right? I can't go down with the ship. I have to keep afloat the people that can be afloat. And sometimes that means stepping back. We've had to go no contact with couple, you know, one of my children at some point, um, which is no fun. Um, other times I've had to really be on a kid every moment of the day to make sure that they're, you know, where they're supposed to be and doing what they need to do because they're not in a frame of mind that makes them able to do that on their own. And, um, and I just think my heart goes out to anybody who's having mm-hmm. to deal with that. And I, I, you know, what's helped me the most is I reached out. There's a, uh, there's a group called NAMI and AMI, and it's like the national Alliance of mental illness, something, something, but it's a, it's a support group for families. It's kind of like Al-Anon for, for mental illness. Um, oh, that's great. And it helps people. It just helps you. You kind of need another person to say, you can't fix this. So you just have to be okay either way. And you can mourn and you can be sad and you can have to do what you need to do, but you also have to just step back. And um, sorry, last bit. Uh, I have a, I, I have a, I, I, um, we go to a church congregation, our bishop and our ward, we had a, a, our congregation and I was sharing with him some of the struggles that I was having with one of my children. I'm sorry for getting emotional. And he just said, you know, when I'm in the, the pit and I can't think of how to help the people that I love, I just have to think I'm not the only one that cares about this person. Other people in the community care about them. Their caregivers care about them. And, and our Heavenly Father cares about them. You know, and that's a faith tradition that I believe in. And sometimes when I'm just in the bottom and I just think nothing is ever going to be okay. I'm sorry for crying. Don't you ever apologize that. for crying. Not on Council of Moms. Hello. <laughs> I know, right? It's my favorite part. I'm a donor on the Council of Moms. Um, no, but you just have to remember that you're not the only one that cares about, and, yeah. and sometimes what you don't have enough of, somebody else might. So, you know, I don't have any answers, real answers. Oh, you just did, though. Yeah. I just have gratitude You really did. Others. Because we do need each other. We need that kind of connection, and we can't close that door. And I love that you mentioned God. Mm-hmm. Because I think sometimes we feel a little hesitant to maybe talk about, like asking, you know, for help consistently and asking other people to ask on our behalf. And I, yeah. I have, I, in helping my kids um, and other loved ones through mental health challenges, uh, while it, you know, trying to maintain my own mental health too, I've, I've found a lot of peace, a lot of strength uh, through prayer. 
Yeah. But I think it's, for me, I think it's that extra thing where it helps me to just disconnect myself a little bit from it. Like, so I don't have to emotionally drown in the same things. You know, I don't have to feel, feel so consumed and drowned. I think mm. that's how my prayers have been answered. And I couldn't do that by myself. So for me, that's like the game changer. In a moment, you're going to hear from Dr. Jamie Ballard, who's an independent community researcher. She has research experience focusing on supporting families affected by trauma and toxic stress. Thank you, Jamie, for your time. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Uh, A lot of parents, I think, want to take care of their children's mental health. I think there's a lot of stress on parents to know really how they can help without overstepping. Mm -hmm. And so my first question to you is, uh, how do you do that? (laughs) (laughs) That is such an important question. And and it's so hard. And I feel like especially when it's mental health, our first impulse as parents is, how do I take this away? How do I make this something you don't have to deal with anymore at all? Yes. Unfortunately, that isn't usually possible, especially for us as parents. Uh, And it can sometimes feel to kids, especially to teenagers, like like parents want this to just not be true. Like maybe they don't want us to talk about our mental health. They they just wish that it would go away altogether. Uh, And so I love what you said about how can we how can we support our kids how can we help our kids without overstepping uh and i think that there are really three main things that i thought of that we can do that and the first one is really to just listen to our kids and it's really hard to do especially if our kids are talking about things like depression or feeling suicidal it's really hard to just listen and sometimes that's what our kids need the most yeah you have to, it's not something that necessarily comes naturally i know that i am a very expressive person i give away everything on my face and i've had to practice no really relaxing my face so that i don't look freaked out mm-hmm. and then express that later to you know a friend or to a therapist to, you know, when I had a spouse, like, and and process it there, but not in front of the kid. That is so hard. Oh, and you just hit on something else that's huge is you as a parent have to have other people to talk to so that when you have those reactions come up, you have a place to put that and to talk that through that isn't with your kids. able to process your own reactions with another adult is essential. And if you don't have that outlet, it's hard to keep those negative feelings from bleeding into conversations where they don't belong and potentially being hurtful to your child. But Jamie also said that there is a very appropriate and necessary method of sharing what you see with your kids. And that's when you're helping to direct them to things that have brought them joy in the past or helping them track their mental health objectively. This is especially important if your kids are on medication. If your kids are trying something out for their mental health and you can keep notes about, here's what we see in the first week of them being on medication. Here's what we see in the second week. That's hard for kids especially to keep track of. And it's hard for anybody, including adults, to keep track of when they're stuck in their mental health. And so it's really powerful if you as a parent or as someone else who's supportive can make notes and then share that with them and they can share it with their doctor. Oh, that's so helpful because that is something concrete. Yeah. It's like (laughs) for parents like me who are like, give me something to do. Mm -hmm. Give me a job. I'm like, I'll get a new notebook. I'll get out my pen. I got this. Yeah, exactly. And then the last thing that I find really helpful 
is that your job as a parent or even as a friend is really to help them build their toolkit for managing their mental health. Mm-hmm. It's not to try to make it go away. It's not to remind them that things will get better usually because they are they might already know that. It's to help them build the tools that they need to keep this manageable. Most mental health things come in waves. Anxiety comes in waves, it goes high and it goes low. Depression comes in waves, it goes high and it goes low. And we can know that. We can know that things will get better. We can even know that things will get bad again and then they'll get better. And having somebody who is helping us see the things that help us feel better, the things that help us manage what's going on and building our confidence that we can do this. We have the skills and we have a team that's standing behind us. That's really powerful. Oh, yeah. Just knowing you're not alone and Mm -hmm. that it is manageable, that there are those sorts of resources to put in their toolkit. I mean, that is giving them something to be able to take out into the world to manage for themselves. Mm -hmm. For a lot of families, especially where their concerns are still in in the threshold where it, it might go away on its own or it might need more support, it is really, really, really common for kids to have oh, mental health concerns. That, that feels so great to hear mm-hmm. as a parent because, you know, when, you're, when your baby is hurting, yeah. <laughs> you just think, what you know, you just do anything to help them not mm-hmm. feel that way and to see themselves the way that you see them. Yeah. And, and it, it is hard to reach out and talk to other people about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that's why I appreciate being able to have this kind of vulnerable conversation with you as well. Um, I'm curious, too, with all of your experience, um, how do you personally then, when it's so easy to have it overtake your entire life, take care of yourself when one of your kids is having a really difficult time with their mental health? Because it seems selfish. It seems counterintuitive. But we know you have to take care of yourself Mm -hmm. in order to be there for your kids. And so I really feel like a lot of parents are living in that tension of, uh, like, kind of almost all or nothing. What's your advice concerning self-care? We talk all the time about the air reminder on the airplanes that you have to put on first before you put somebody (laughs) else. And and that's true. I actually don't resonate with that one as much as I resonate with a different metaphor that's sharpening the saw. If you're going to be out chopping down a tree, sawing down a tree, you have to take a break and sharpen your saw or you're going to keep hacking away at that forever without making any real difference. You need that time to be away, take a break, sharpen your skills, and then come back. I like that metaphor, I think, a little bit better, too. Sort of all overall, what kinds of conversations do you wish would be a part of just everyday family life? Mm-hmm kind of like with this idea of preventative measures, uh, you know, in place. One that I think is really important is just talking about feelings. And you can start this really young with young kids and they aren't likely to know what their feelings are. And so sometimes we can label that for them as parents. We can say, it looks like you're feeling really angry. Is that how you feel? And that builds those stepping stones for them to be able to recognize their own emotions. And then we just scale that up as they get older. So for a a teenager, it could be something similar where you could say, hey, do you know how you're feeling right now? And let them talk that through with us. And if they don't know, maybe reflecting some things. 
it, it seems like you're acting similar to when you felt really anxious in the past. Does that fit how you're feeling right now? And so we can help our kids recognize how they're feeling. And sometimes just naming it takes away the power mm. of, of that emotion, makes it easier to deal with. Another thing that we have to do kind of carefully, but I think every family should have some talking about struggles and talking about mistakes. We have actually done that. We ask a question every day at dinner and we change what the question is. But one of them that we've done in the past is what's a mistake that you've made today? Because we really want our kids to know everybody makes mistakes. Everybody does every day. And it's not something that we need to get our knickers in a twist over. <laughs> and I think when we can model for our kids without going into too much detail, because we don't need to put our burdens on our kids at all. That's not their job. But we can let them know, you know, I feel really sad today about this. And these are some of the things I'm doing to try to work through feeling sad so that we're modeling. These are normal feelings and we have ways that we can cope with them. I like that. There's one more that I think is extra important because of the pandemic mm -hmm. uh, and the stresses associated with the pandemic. And that's talking about suicide. So I mentioned that. Uh, mental health concerns are really common, including among kids. Actually, one in five kids has some kind of a mental health concern. And that was before the pandemic. It's gone up a lot with all of the stresses during the pandemic. And thoughts of suicide and even active plans of suicide have also really gone up during the pandemic to the point that about 20% of high school students say they have thought about suicide. That's oh, a wow. lot. That is a lot. Yeah. That was oh, wow. really startling to me. And if you are thinking about that and you don't know, you don't feel like you can talk about that with anybody, that can be a really lonely and isolating feeling. And one of the things that we've learned is that talking with our kids about suicide does not increase the chance that they will commit suicide. It makes it usually decreases the chance. It makes them feel like it's something they can talk about, that people care about them, that they will be willing to listen and not just shut down, which again is really hard. And we as parents have to get some practice on how to do that. But I would say, and this is actually the American Association of Pediatrics recommendation as well, that for kids over the age of 12, mm -hmm. every parent can talk with their kids and just say, hey, a lot of kids your age think about suicide. Is that something that you've ever thought about? Even if they... Oh, what a hard conversation. It is too. a hard conversation. Because you have to wait for the answer. Right. Oh. And it's heavy. And it's easier to do with friends. So if you can talk with yeah. your parents and say, hey, have you done this? And, and kind of go through it together. That makes it a lot easier. There's also some really excellent guides online about how to have that conversation and responses that might come up and how you can respond to that. But... That's a nice way of showing your kids up front. I'm a safe place to talk about things. And if this doesn't come up for you right now, that's great. If it doesn't come up for you ever, that's great. But if it does, we already opened a door and you already know that I can talk to you about anything. 
At this moment in the conversation, I asked Jamie how this all changes when the loved one we're supporting isn't a child, but a friend, an adult. And in a moment, I'm also gonna ask her about how this operates in a marriage, where one person's mental health can have such a monumental impact on someone else. A lot of the principles are the same, and then of course, some some change. So a friend wouldn't have the same role in building someone's toolkit that a parent would, right? Sure. But they would have the same role in listening, and they would have the same role in observing and reflecting back what they see in their friend, things that they see working and strengths that they see their friend having. The role here in how much you recommend resources also changes. Mm-hmm. As a parent, I can say, I really think that therapy would be helpful for you. And I really want you to try at least three sessions, right? I have more leeway there. I can drive my kid to therapy or set them up on the computer and get that going. As a friend, that's not my role. I need to respect my friend's responsibility and their accountability for themselves. But I can bring up those ideas and say, you know, I know this has been helpful for a lot of my friends, or I have some place that I would really recommend if that's something that you're interested in. So how does it change with a spouse? Oh, that's a great question. And this is where my my heart gets tied up in it as well, because this has been my personal experience. My husband has pretty severe depression. And there's a balance there. As a spouse, I have to still respect my, my partner's responsibility for themselves and their ideas about what would work for them. But it's also reasonable for me to say, for my self-care, I need you to have someone else that you can talk to about this. And my husband has done that for me. I did that for my husband at one point where where we can say, we need to get you some kind of resource. We can talk about what that is, but we really need this in our family. I'm I'm trying to imagine people in that situation who said, I've I've suggested it, I've tried. Mm-hmm. Um, they won't. Mm-hmm. They're resistant. And I've I feel like self-care-wise, that would be really, really make things just a lot more difficult. It really, what do you suggest uh, to have the conversations after that? It's really hard, especially when these challenges are really severe and your partner might not have the energy to follow through on something, even if they do think that it would be helpful. And it's really hard as a spouse to feel like in those cases, the whole responsibility for everything isn't on you. Um, I know that that has been my experience, that I felt like it's my job to know just what to bring up at exactly the right time in exactly the right way so that we can get help. And when there is resistance, it felt like either that's my fault for not having a better way to bring it up or that's my partner not being responsive enough to what would help me when I'm doing everything I can to try to help my partner. So I had this choice between feeling guilty or feeling resentful. And I don't really like either of those. No, that sounds like horrible choices. So what did you do? At that particular point, and this is me speaking for myself, not as an expert, just my experience. I had to switch at least temporarily to focusing on what would help me. What is going to be some self-care for me is going to help me be able to keep being there for my husband when he is doing things to support me, but his energy level just isn't there where he can do a lot, right? He, he did actually go to therapy when I asked him to. It was 
a little bit slow to get started. And actually our first therapist really wasn't a good fit. And that's where I wish that I had pushed more for, this doesn't seem like a good fit. Let's find somebody who who fits better. That's really key about therapy is going to somebody that you like, that you en- that you enjoy talking to. And I wish I had known that then. That's okay. We go with what we know at the time. Right. Uh, and so when he was going to therapy, but really didn't have energy for doing really much more than that, I shifted to really letting my friend group know what I was going through. And they were amazing for me. There were a couple of things that were really uh, triggers for me at the time, like people always asking how my husband was doing. I would start to feel bad, like, I, I get that you care about him and I really appreciate it, but I'm having a hard time too. And you're talking to me. So ask how. Yeah, I'm was. here. Right. Oh. So my friends were amazing at asking me how I was doing, at checking in. I had one friend who is so dear to me and she took me on a few dates because she said, I know your husband can't do this. So I'm going to take you out for dinner. I'll take you up at seven. And oh, yeah, things like that meant so much to me. And it gave me space where I could clear my head, where I could think more about what was my job and what wasn't. Because our impulse, I think, is to try to grab control, or at least mine is. Like, okay, I'm going to try to put as many things under my control as possible because this feels chaotic. And Mm. uh, I'm going to do as much as I can in all of these areas. And that's exhausting and it's not realistic. We don't have control over all of those things. And so having some space, having some time where I could really think and not feel all of that pressure helped me think through what is my job and what isn't. And it can be my job to suggest resources and to tell my partner, this is how it would help us. And we really need this help. And then it's not my job what they do after that. That's their job with whatever energy that they have. Yeah. It's hard to practice. And I appreciate you expressing that and just being really honest about, because sometimes you know what the right thing to do is, and it takes a lot of self-control to be able to to do it, mm-hmm. you know, and not just act in the moment, but to be very intentional and deliberate about it, knowing that it can have such a big impact, not only on them, but on you and on the entire family dynamic. Oh, yeah. So I, it's just so vital. Yeah, it's huge. And I want to say briefly, my my husband's worst depressive episode was shortly after we were married, but that was over a decade ago. And in the midst of that intense mental health concern for him, intense burdens for me, it feels like that's all you can focus on, right? We, we have to focus on this current moment. But all of those things that, that I did, the finding self-care, the suggesting resources, the trying to be patient, trying to learn from our mistakes along the way, all of the things that my husband did, the seeking out resources when I really asked him to do it, being patient, building those skills to cope, all of those have served us so well over the decades since then. And so last year when I was really struggling with my mental health was when Dave came to me and said, hey, you had this conversation with me a decade ago and I need you to know now that it would be good for our family if you got therapy. 
And, wow. and I could do that and it was powerful and I saw almost immediate benefits, but I wouldn't have done it for me. I needed him to come to me and tell me that it would help our family just for how I wow. personally. So that was a really rough time, but it built a really strong foundation. And now, even as we've been through family crises, even just in the past few weeks, we know we can do it. We've been through hard things. We know we can do it again. Wow. I love that. Like an example of, of resilience in practice and the benefits 10 years later. Thank you for sharing that with us because I need to hear that too of like doing these hard things can reap stronger families and great benefits and, and contribute to the self-care. They don't have to be in competition for each other. Remember that story about the note cards and miles and how I failed? (laughs) I want to tell you one more story, and this one actually has a happy ending. And if you're wondering if the advice you've heard will actually work, this should put your mind at ease. Here's a time I did it right when I was dealing with another one of my child's depression. They came to me in a moment of really true desperation. And this is something that you never want any of your kids to say to you, but like, I'm not doing well and I need help. And this was over a a Christmas break during college. And this is a time when you feel just absolutely horrible as a parent because your baby's hurting in the worst way, but you also have this, or I did, sort of relief that they came to you to tell you, I mean, what a gift. But What a blessing and a win that they would reach out to you when they were so depressed. And in asking for help, I wanted to honor and really help. I took a deep breath and I used my organizational skills (laughs) to research therapists who helped with the issues that my kid was dealing with specifically. And then I went to my kid and said, hey, here's a list I researched who are taking new clients, who take our insurance, who deals specifically with what you're worried about. Do you want to make the appointment or should I? And in that moment, even though they were technically over 18 and an adult, they asked me to do it because the thought of calling was too overwhelming. But I gave them the choice, and and I did. They went, their mental health improved, and that was just part of the reason it improved. But it was a help, and it was a reminder that I will act and do anything to help. And it was a reinforcement to them that they weren't alone. Now, years later, diagnosed with like AGHD on their own with their doctor, I now follow up. So it looks different. My support for them and their mental health looks different. They're on their own. They're much older now. But there's some support and it looks like this. I ask them about their mental health in a very similar way I ask them about their physical health. I always ask, you know, like, are you drinking enough water? Are you getting enough sleep? You know, just like a lot of moms. And I ask them, okay, how are you feeling? I ask them how... uh, Knowing about their ADHD is helping them set themselves up for success in, say, the timing of their classes or homework or how they manage their social life. I ask them about their struggles and successes. I ask them about their medication. And although they pay for and pick up their own meds, I tell them if they can't pay because they're poor college students, I would like to help. But I back off. And this is how I support without stepping over, which, for the record, I still want to do. Like, I still have the urge to manage their schedules, their assignments. Honestly, like, I have to bite my tongue because I think, oh, they should work these hours, and then they should take this class, and then this semester. And I just think, nope, if they want to know your opinion, they will ask. And I just want to get a little credit. 
for how hard that is. But the important thing now, I understand, is that I was listening, and especially for an adult child, that even while making sure they knew I was here and ready and willing to support however they needed, I respected their autonomy and let them be responsible. Whether it's a child or a spouse, mental health struggles can awaken some of our deepest fears, but we don't have to act on those fears. Reach out to friends or other parents so that you have an outlet to process your role. Find an NAMI support group like Rebecca did. We'll put the link on our website. They even meet online, so no matter where you are, there is a support system within reach. And even if you don't think your kids, your spouse, or your friends are struggling, have that difficult conversation. Ask them if they've thought about suicide. You won't cause it. You don't have to fix it. And you can make yourself a safe space for that dialogue, which does save lives. You're not alone. So many of us are facing this together. For more resources, visit www.nami.org or call 988. As long as the stars above, the soul is love. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio. It's hosted by Lisa Valentine Clark and produced by McKay Menden and Becca Hurley with help from Kaya Dibb, with music and post production by Sam Clausen and Clark Jackman. Please send this episode to a friend or help others find the show by leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.